Hello, climate change. Waking up and taking action one conversation at a time. The whole point of this is very selfish. It is me trying to figure out how to wrap my mind around this topic. Um, and I have an awesome guest today to help me do that. And also for whoever I'm talking to, to help her, you know, for you to wrap your mind around this topic and for anyone listening to wrap their mind. It's not, I guess it's not entirely selfish, but anyway, my guest is Fran Storch. Hello, Fran. Hi. (laughs) And Fran is a naturopathic physician. And so we, we were kind of riffing on the connections between environment and health, and so, but before we get into that, Fran, can you just explain, as I don't think a lot of people know what a naturopathic physician is, can you explain what that is? Sure. Uh, naturopathic medicine, it's a really special kind of medicine. We have our own special medical school that we attend. Um, in the United States, naturopathic medicine um, is licensed in about 17 jurisdictions. What distinguishes naturopathic medicine from other types of medicine is our six basic principles. Um, our principles start with the healing power of nature, first do no harm, the doctor is teacher, prevention, um, treat the whole person, and look for the cause. Those are our six basic principles, and those are the center of naturopathic medicine. Uh, and in naturopathic medical school, we are trained very similarly to MDs in terms of clinical and physical diagnosis. We learn all the same kinds of laboratory testing. We're trained in pharmaceuticals, so we are trained to prescribe and understand pharmaceutical drugs, even though we try not to go there first. Um, we are trained to do minor surgery, and if we get extra training, we can be trained to deliver babies. And when we do that, we generally would do home births. So that's our training. Depending on where we're practicing, our scope of practice may be different. So depending on the jurisdiction we're in, uh, the different states and territories have different uh, rules in terms of what we can and can't do. It happens that the state of Connecticut, where we're sitting, we don't have a great law here. The law was um, enacted in 1923 because somebody in the legislature was treated very well by a naturopathic physician, had a successful um, healing episode with Mm -hmm. them. And so they got the law passed. And for the longest time, um, Connecticut was the only state east of the Mississippi to be licensed until about 2000. And then a bunch more states got licensed. Mm. Um, But what happens is the states that get licensed more recently practice more in line with what our training is. In the state of Connecticut, we can't prescribe pharmaceuticals. uh, We can't deliver babies and we can't do minor surgery. And you'd think, well, why would you want to do those things anyway? Well, one of the things we do is naturopathic medicine doesn't mean never use drugs. What it means is first do no harm, which Mm -hmm. means if the thing that's going to help you heal is a pharmaceutical drug, then you use that. We may use the drugs in different ways, and we also want to have the ability to help you manage your drugs and perhaps get off them if that's what you want to do. And if we can't prescribe, we can't do that. Mm. So it, it, it hinders us. Right. Um, there are certain conditions that you, you need to use drugs. Right. Didn't and, I recently, I, re, I feel like there was something recently where I needed a antibiotic and I, and, and I would talk to you and you're like, yeah, I can't I'm like, oh, okay. I have to go. I don't even, I can't remember what it is right now. I think 
Oh, I know what it was. Lyme disease. Yes. Well, right. that's that's one where we want to be able to use antibiotics right. because doxycycline works very well right. to kill spirochetes. Mm-hmm. So that's a condition where we would want to use right. pharmaceuticals. However, the way we use them is different than how MDs yeah. use them. And also, when you give a pharmaceutical drug, you may also want to do adjunctive therapies mm-hmm. to support the person around the fact that they're taking the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. drug. Right. So that's how we would use them, and that's how we would differ. But I am thrilled with what we do. What mm. Our medicine is tremendous. It's really, really incredible. I really believe in what we do. It's really where it's at in terms of healing because we take into account all different kinds of healing modalities. One of the things that we are is eclectic physicians, Mm -hmm. meaning that we use lots of different modalities to help you with your healing. And whatever it is, as far as I'm concerned, as a physician, I want you to be happy and healthy. And I will send you in whatever direction you need to go in order to be happy and healthy, whatever that is. So that means if you need a pharmaceutical drug to make that happen, then have the pharmaceutical drug. Um, But it also means if you need to dance in the field with a purple chicken, I will set you up with that too. So I don't care what it is, if it's weird or wacky or interesting or normal or different than what you're used to or similar to what you're used to. We want to put you together with things that make sense for you to do your healing. Dancing with the purple chicken would be... Prescribed for what ailment? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you need it for. So let me just, uh, just to really briefly, because I do have people who listen from outside of this country. Can you say a little? Do you know much about naturopathy outside of the United States? Well, for example, uh, a little bit, not too much. Um, one of the things you find in other countries is there isn't necessarily a profession called naturopathic medicine. Mm. Um, Naturopathic medicine encompasses modalities, and we do herbal medicine, we do homeopathy, we do nutrition, um, we do physical medicine. Some of us do acupuncture if we have that training. We do um, uh, hydrotherapy. And so if you go to other countries, in some cases, um, that you will have separate practitioners for each of those things. You'll have phytotherapists, you'll have um, botanists, you'll have uh, people who do just homeopathy. So you just mentioned just some words I, I don't know what they are. Hydrotherapy yeah. and phytotherapy. What yeah, are phytotherapy would simply be someone who uses plants for healing. And that term phytotherapist, I believe is used in the UK. Um, Mm -hmm. if you're listening in Mm -hmm. England, let us know. Um, but, um, you you will see that you'll see other countries where, um, and then the other one's hydrotherapy. So hydrotherapy is the use of water for healing, Hmm. you know, so simple, so simple and so elegant and so powerful, um, from drinking water to using water in baths, using it in compresses, spraying water on a person, Hmm. um, you know, putting things into baths. Um, for example, Epsom salts or bath salts or herbal baths. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's many ways you can use water for healing and water is tremendous because, um, water alters circulation. So it alters circulation. It alters the flow of blood through different parts of your body. Um, it can also increase the numbers of red and white blood cells and Mm -hmm. it also, um, can, add or take away heat as needed. Um, and because it moves, uh, blood cells, it can also move things through lymphatics. Oh yes. yes. It can move toxins as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when you're moving blood and lymphatics through detoxifying organs, 
um, then you're going to get detoxification. Right. So, you, you know, one of the things we'll do for hydrotherapy is um, address the um, organs of detoxification like the kidneys, the liver, the lymphatics, and, of course, the digestive system. Hmm. So it's it's very simple and very powerful. So let's let's see if we can dive into the connection between health and the environment. Sure. And there's so many I think there's I can think of several angles to go in through, but I will I will turn to you to start us off. What All comes righty. to mind for you? Well, remember that one of the six basic principles of naturopathic medicine is prevention. And so prevention doesn't just mean you know, you're going to eat less sugar to prevent diabetes. It also means you have to have an environment in which you can do your healing. So if you live in a place where you're in a food desert, you know, you're not going to be able to go to the store and find produce. You're not going to be able to eat produce and get all the benefits from, from that. If you live in an environment that's polluted, that's going to make you sick. One of the things we do, we, we do functional medicine where we help people with their detoxification. And there's a lot of problems with pollution in the world. And there are places in the world that are very polluted, that the air quality is very poor. And we have to address that directly. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's right. being exposed to things like PCBs, um, they're being exposed to dioxins, they're being exposed to hydrocarbons from um, from industry. These are things we have to address directly. So uh, you know, even in the, so, we're not even talking in an esoteric sense. Pollution, helping people deal with pollution, is part of naturopathic medicine. Well, when you say one of your six is it six principles yeah. is address the cause. Yes, I treating the you, cause. Sure, right, and, means that you it, it sort of it sort of gives you a mandate to to. Um, I don't know if be an activist is exactly the right term, but to be, but to be thinking on levels outside of the individual, sort of the scope of a human body. This is one mm. of the great things about naturopathic medicine. It's encompassing. Mm. We, I'm not just interested in healing um, one person. Right. I am. I mean, that is effectively what yeah. I wind up doing, helping one person at a time. But um, I'm also interested in healing the planet. Yeah. Healing the world is part of naturopathic yeah. medicine. And... We mean that figuratively and literally. So, you know, in Judaism, we talk about how each person is a universe. Mm. And so when you help one person heal, that has ripple effects throughout humanity. Um, but mm. if you do something like you go out and you do cleanup in a stream, you, there's a whole bunch of things that are going to ripple from that and you right. know, from all of the the life and the ecosystems um and yep. there's going to be less perhaps pcbs and dioxins in the yeah. environment all the environmental toxins there's so many ways that that can happen i mean when you do things to help heal the planet that's naturopathic medicine one thing that has you know the more i've thought about climate change and all the things that go into its the creation of the situation and which also makes me look at all the times that there's been an oil spill or, you know, just all the different things that are going on in the world that that are maybe less obviously directly connected to, you know, it's not necessarily a carbon um, putting directly putting carbon into the atmosphere, but it's part of this what what appears to be part of the problem to me. I've become more and more sensitive to the that idea of the ripple effect. Yes. Like, and like just the example that I just brought up, the idea of an oil spill, well, they say, well, we cleaned it up. They're talking about, yeah, you don't, maybe you don't see the tar balls on the beach anymore, but the, the ripple effects are just beginning from, from the bottom of the food chain up, up into, you know, all, all of that pollution that there's nothing that, that, 
harms some something on the planet that doesn't eventually reach us as humans right on some level because so. we are all connected and again right. that's esoteric and it's also mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very also direct <laughs> yeah. you can talk about it just very scientifically yeah. um if you're talking about an oil spill yeah. i don't know that it's possible for them to get all of it because right. some of that sludge is going to be heavy it's going to sink to the the mm-hmm. um ocean floor mm-hmm. and you have um critters that are bottom feeders right you know you have your flounder and you have other uh, fish that eat from the bottom sturgeon and different fish like that and then they're going to be consuming um that that oil and and the those um those compounds and then anything that eats them mm-hmm, is exactly. going to they're going to ingest that stuff and also um if they're ingesting it from being a bottom feeder they're going to be excreting it as well so it perpetuates in the environment and this stuff takes a long long time to break yeah. down so uh, maybe this is not it's okay if this isn't a question that you can answer but i guess i wanted i was wondering if in your practice you feel like you see um you're seeing the the top tier of that i mean this is a really human centric way of putting it to call it the top tier but but the human tier of that ripple effect in people's health and in terms of how we care for our environment and how it affects individuals in their health Oh, of of course. Okay. Get this. <laughs> the second place I practiced naturopathic medicine was the city of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Halifax, Nova Scotia, I, I haven't checked there lately, but we might want to do that. Okay. Halifax, Nova Scotia was very interesting because there um it's it's the epicenter for environmental medicine. There was a situation at one of the hospitals in Halifax where um, a whole bunch of people were coming down with illnesses. And um, the, the, of course, when you get environmental illness, what they call environmental illness, where you're being um, subjected to multiple chemicals and having a hard time dealing with them, it's one of those conditions that we see a lot of in naturopathic medicine um, where you go from doctor to doctor to doctor and nobody knows what to do with you because the medical model in this country is really to get them in and out as fast as they can. You know, they're, they're not set up to treat something who has multiple symptoms, multiple systems involved, uh, multiple possibilities of what's causing those symptoms. Um, naturopathic medicine is set up to do that, um, but most professions aren't well anyway so there was this hospital in, in the city of halifax and um, most professions meaning most medical medical professions right. yeah med- medical conventional medicine as it is yeah. practiced in the united states okay. um and there are integrative mds as mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. but um on the on whole, the whole right. how medicine is practiced you, you don't get very it's long very specialized physician. you kind of get into a narrow it seems like doctors get into a narrow sort of niche of, of expertise and then the rest you know, they don't don't look at things as holistically because they know everything about uh, gastroenterology or whatever, but sure. nothing about what's going on with your foot. <laughs> right. And maybe they, there's connections there that get lost. That's right. Process, oh, yeah. definitely. And the whole body is connected. Everything is connected to right. everything. And the, everything is connected to everything is a rather profound statement because mm-hmm. everything is connected to everything. Okay, getting back to Halifax. In the early 90s, I believe this happened. Um, where there were lots of people who were getting sick in this one particular hospital. And nobody believed anybody. Nobody was taking the staff at this hospital seriously. 
So it was a lot of the staff were complaining of varying symptoms, whether it was fatigue and respiratory illnesses and So sort of lung like conditions. a low grade, lots of little problems, and it just looked like, eh, they're just complaining. Right. <laughs> Nobody would take anybody seriously okay. until one day Dr. Roy Fox got sick. Mm-hmm. And when Dr. Roy Fox got sick, he had some clout, he had some power, mm. and he started looking into it. And he promoted this idea of environmental medicine, mm-hmm. that there is a thing called environmental sensitivity, and that's what was going on, and that right. the building actually had a sick building syndrome going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So when you have a sick building, you can have a lot of things going on. You can have outgassing from carpets. So, right. so air, when you no circulation of air. That's right. right. Yes. So when you when you put carpet down, mm-hmm. if the carpet is synthetic, um, the carpet has been put together. It's got polymers in it, mm-hmm. and polymers are assembled in solvents, and those solvents can be toxic to humans. Mm-hmm. And the thing about a lot of environmental chemicals is that we don't have specific detoxification enzymes and systems in our bodies to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So they can persist in our bodies, and depending on how we're wired, different people excrete things in different ways. Um, There's a whole um, branch of medicine, um, genomics, genomics where you look at people's um, gene structure as to how well they detoxify. You look at various different um, genetics in terms of um, the enzymes and there's things called SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that are very specific variations in genes as to how you do various stuff. And in this case, we're talking about detoxification. So for example, you can have your CYP1A2. If you, CYP1A2 is the gene that um, predicts how fast or slow you metabolize caffeine. And so depending on the variation in that SNP, um, you may be a fast or slow metabolizer of caffeine. So a fast metabolizer is going to have a big cup of coffee right before bed and go to sleep. Mm. Slow metabolizer mm. is going to have half a cup of tea like me and be like, that's me. me, I eat a little chocolate at 7 p.m. and then I'm up in the middle of the night. So you're, yeah, you're probably a slow metabolizer. Your CYP1A2 is of the slow brain. And there's many, many variations. Um, there's many, many different SNPs that relate to how well you detox. And then there are all these chemicals that aren't detoxed by any of these methods. So you have to, you basically have to get out of the toxic environment and you have to do basic, basic naturopathic medicine to help the person right. detoxify. Things like sweating and fasting and losing weight. One of the things that happens is environmental chemicals are stored in fat. So if you lose fat, You'll just you, you mechanically get the, rid of the oh, okay. of the toxins, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't lodge in in an right. organ. So getting back to Halifax, what happened was Dr. Fox uh, figured this out, and he set up an environmental medicine center hmm. in Halifax. And so when I was there, um, I lived in Halifax from 1997 to 1999. This was already going, and environmental illness was there was a huge awareness of it in the city of Halifax and pretty much throughout Nova Scotia. And Mm -hmm. any naturopathic physicians who were practicing there were treating people who had or thought they had environmental illness. And so it was something that there was a high awareness of. So if you would go into a restaurant, I don't know if this is still true, but if you would go into a restaurant or a a, um, 
a workout facility, a health facility, mm-hmm. uh, it would say, please refrain from wearing scented products out of respect for our environmentally sensitive right. clients. So when you're talking about the environment, you're not just talking about um, we're emitting greenhouse gases that are causing the glaciers to melt. We're talking about we're spraying perfumes into the air that are making people sick. Yeah. So it's it's at a, a microclimate level as right. well. Yeah, there's, I, I think... Yeah, there's there's so much to become sensitive to, and because we are already so sensitive as beings, like we we absorb we absorb stuff. I I saw a documentary recently, short documentary on Netflix, and the title escapes me though. When I remember it, I'll put it in the show notes. um, That was about breasts, and it was uh, they did a study with um, a group of breastfeeding women, and I think it might have been New Zealand. And they studied their milk, and they were looking at all the toxins in their milk, and um, and uh, I wish the documentary had documentary had gone into more detail because they showed these women looking at the charts of their own results compared to the average typical European, average typical American, average typical uh, Australian, I think, um, and you could kind of see over their shoulder these charts, but never, never did they go into detail about, um, these results, but the, the, some of the toxin levels that they, that they were comparing themselves to the, the, um, United States column was just off the charts. Wow. And, um, and New Zealand was not so far off the charts. Right. And it's like some of these, there's one woman, she had a very, very healthy lifestyle, but I mean, you know, ate really good food and, and, um, seemed you know seemingly what we'd we'd expect someone not to have you know it was a surprise she had very bad results so she went on a toxin fast and then was retested and um the things that she avoided as far as i remember there was really just two things food that was packaged in plastic wow which was basically almost everything that she yeah. had in her refrigerator and even though it was healthy foods you know she she was like the ketchup bottle and the and the yogurt and the i don't know everything but it came down to like an apple and a potato and um <clears throat> and then the other thing was that she stopped traveling in cars because in cars so it used to be that flame retardants were put in all of our furniture until they realized that that they were carcinogens but they still put them in the car furniture i mean the the seating of your car the upholstery of your cars because a car is like you know if if you're in a crash has a tendency to maybe burst into flames so we still subject ourselves to those toxins to avoid that you know, unlikely scenario. Um, but, but without the real understanding of what that does to our bodies and, and in her breast milk in, I don't know how long it was, maybe 10 days, maybe 30 days, but it wasn't a, a super long time. Um, um, in that amount of time, she was able to bring her numbers way down. Wow. Um, but that doesn't say anything about like what's being absorbed and staying in your tissues. Yes. And, you know, as a breast cancer survivor, it was very interesting to me. And knowing that there are estrogen mimickers in all plastics. Yes. And that there the, are. And that we're in a part of the world where the in the United States, we're second only to Massachusetts, which is our next door neighbor in the highest rates of breast cancer. Oh, can, so Connecticut has the second highest rate yeah. of breast cancer in the country and Massachusetts right. is number one. Right. And I'm, and it may be, it may be, um, 
I'm surprised that New Jersey isn't on top. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It has a reputation for a lot of refineries. Oh my goodness. Well, yes, there's oil refineries in New Jersey. I mean, I think we also have a a denser, um, I don't know why Massachusetts would be higher. I don't know. It's, and it also, we, we receive air pollution from the Midwest. Yes, we do. And they don't in New Jersey, Indiana, but New Jersey. So, you know, you're, if you're talking about the entire state of New Jersey, there may be parts of New Mm -hmm. Jersey that are protected from that Mm -hmm. pollution. But if you're talking about the city of Linden, Linden has a huge Mm cogeneration plant. Um, so when you're driving down the turnpike, the Mm -hmm. Jersey turnpike, and you see all those refineries and you will also see the Linden cogeneration plant Mm -hmm. and it's just fields and fields and fields of these towers with flames shooting out of them and big tanks of oil and, Mm -hmm. you know, actual oil refineries Mm -hmm. that's in, you know, when you go through Linden, Elizabeth Rutherford, that, that whole Northern Mm -hmm. part of the turnpike is covered with that stuff. So Linden has a pretty high rate of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. but it may be less throughout the state. One of the things you have in the state of Connecticut is you have the gold coast you have fairfield county fairfield county is densely populated it's close to new york city and you have people um you have wealthier people and wealthier people tend to live in really nice houses with a lot of nice stuff which can translate to a lot of new stuff a lot of off-gassing yes Mm. exactly okay and then massachusetts i'm gonna guess why it might be number one is simply because it's got boston and boston is a huge um it's just a huge metropolis. And um, whereas, you know, Connecticut doesn't have the mm. kind of metropolis that like right. they have in Boston. It's just a huge, yeah. huge area. And there's a little bit more wealth. Oh, because Connecticut is Connecticut, New Jersey bounce back and forth as being the highest per capita income in the country. Hmm. Uh, with the counties, the highest per capita counties being Fairfield in Connecticut and Bergen in Jersey. So, I mean, I, it would be interesting to do a little more research and see if there's been anybody sort of sniffing out why are the reasons in, in, on a level that that um, that feels uh, legitimate, you know. Yeah. Um, there's a great book that I highly recommend called Living Downstream by right. Sharon Steingraber. I think that's her last name. It's something close to that. Um, and she's a, uh, she's, she's a scientist. I want to say she's a botanist. Uh, I don't remember what her, her field is exactly in science, but she, but she's also a poet and, uh, also a breast cancer survivor. And she, I don't even really like, I could go into a, a whole tangent about that, that the term survivor, which I find very, problematic, but I won't do that right now. Um, but anyway, she had breast cancer. Um, and, um, but she wrote this book where she's looking at, um, do you, have you, are you familiar with it? Okay. So she, the, the title comes from this story she tells at the beginning of the book where there's, um, a community that lives on the edge of a river and, um, you know, one day they see a person, flailing drowning coming down the river in the water and there's a you know emergency effort to rescue this person and they pull this person out of the water and it's a big drama and they save this person and and just as that that moment is completing they see another person coming down the water and um and this starts to happen on such a regular basis that um they're constantly busy rescuing people out of the water and they set up a whole system and shifts and policies and procedures about how to get the rescue these people coming down stream but 
there's just no energy left to go upstream and figure out what's, how are these people getting pushed in? And, right. and, um, she uses this sort of as analogy where we're so busy trying to cure these ailments that have to do with things that are upstream of, of the, their, their origins. Um, and, and I wouldn't, I would, I think also you can go beyond cancer. You can talk about all the ways that we as a society are impacting our health because of the way we're living on the planet, you know, creating lifestyles where it's impossible in a lot of places to breathe the good air or to be outside or kids can't play outside and, and food deserts where the food that's available is all seriously processed and mostly just sugar and coloring, um, and fat and, you know, high fructose corn syrup and then all of the pollution that those, yeah. So anyway, it's not just cancer that, that is impacted there, but she was no. talking, she's doing this book about like, what are, what's going on and how, and she talks about how it's, what makes it difficult to actually, it seems so obvious that there's connections, but, but, you know, if you take uh, another story she talks about is, um, I don't remember the name of the place, but there was a diner somewhere. I might've been New Jersey where, uh, people got sick from something and that they, that, that turned out to be some, something in the, in the salt that, that, um, was mistakenly in the, in their, in the, this particular diner, but you know, they didn't get sick until three days out. And in three days, there's all these different things that they've been exposed to. And, and it took a lot of research to sort of figure out like, what's the common thread with all these people showing up in the emergency room with this sudden gastric, you know, distress. And, um, now, when you look at cancer, you're looking at something that maybe happened 10 years ago That's or right. maybe happened in your parents' generation and that right. you were seeded with before you were born. Yes. So, yeah, so it's it's very, very labor-intensive to really, like, pin down those sources. But it seems so straightforward to be like, hey, you know, it's probably better if we, we know cer- certain things. We, we might as well, um, you know, suffer the consequences of our... our changing our lifestyles a bit so that so that we don't need these flame retardants in our cars or we don't need you know what lots of things but you you can probably say a lot of things what would you be on the top of your list that you'd like to see (laughs) addressed oh boy well Hmm. you see the thing is, I mean, because you could go in any direction. I mean, you, one could say that we should we should never use plastic water bottles and th- mm-hmm. that we should only be drinking out of glass or, you know, drinking directly out of our taps. That would be one direction to go. But, you know, in, from where I sit, one thing that I see a lot of is people don't move and people don't eat well. Mm-hmm. And so it, a lot of times it boils down to uh, eating a really good diet and getting good exercise. Uh, and one of the things that exercise affords you, it affords you motion. One of the problems that we have in our society is we have become too sedentary. People are very deconditioned where I can say to somebody, hey, once a week, just once a week, why don't you go for a long walk? And I'll say to them, so um, how about a, a long walk? Can you walk for two hours? Just one day a week, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday when it's convenient for you, and you're not, not working. How about two hours? And they look at me and go, two hours. Mm. It's unimaginable to a person mm. that they might 
want to go for a walk for two hours and just walking. Mm -hmm. So people are really, really deconditioned. They sit at their jobs all day. They sit in their cars, um, getting Mm -hmm. to work, to and from work. Uh, and they're just not moving. And we're talking, you know, you and I, Amy, we are athletes. So we like to work out very hard. So we're at a different level, but I'm talking, it's hard to convince people to go for a walk, Mm. to do anything. They have a Mm. hard time fitting it into their lives, finding places to do it. Mostly what I hear is it's finding the time to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you have a sedentary job, kids in a commute, the exercise is probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And so society is set up. So that happens. And, you know, you get to your job and the job isn't providing yeah. you with an opportunity to work out. Whereas if you go to China, you go in a factory there and they make you exercise or Japan. You know, there are places in the world where they take care of this. And they make sure mm. that people have when and how to exercise. Mm. So if you're talking about the environment and you are being exposed to PCBs and dioxins, if you are sweating regularly, you're going to um, have less of that in your body because you're going to be turning over. Even if you, you have a little extra fat on, you're still turning your fat over. So even if you're not, uh, even if you have a compound in your body that's not accessed by some of your uh, cytochrome P450 enzymes or your glutathione or your sulfation or what have you, um, you um, are still turning over your fat. And uh, so if you're exercising regularly, you're going to tend to do that. Um, the other thing that happens is not just that you could get cancer. So cancer, what cancer is, cancer isn't one thing. Cancer is a an umbrella term, you know, that the mm-hmm. word cancer means a crib. And it's a crab. Yeah, a crab. A crib. Now a crib. That's how we say it in New Jersey. A crib. (laughs) Means a crib. And that means it has claws. And you think of cancer as a thing that invades and digs into the tissue where it's at. And that's that's how cancer's a genetic mutation. Yes, it is. That's exactly. So cancer isn't it's one sort of thing. yourself gone rogue. Yes, it is. Exactly <laughs> right. That's right. So it arises from any tissue in your body. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because you have genes that have been flipped on or other genes that mm-hmm. have been flipped off. Right. And if you throw enough antioxidants and anti-inflammatory agents and um, other modifiers of the pathways that go towards um, those genetic, those genes being flipped on and off, you can shut down cancer. Or you can prevent cancer from happening. Um, so the thing is, uh, it's it's kind of a battle between um, what are your specific genetics, what tissues in you are more likely to go there, and uh, how much can you expose yourself to the things that can shut down shut down those genes. Um, and it's a crapshoot. Yeah, you know, it's that, and you could be doing everything right. Or you could be doing most things right. Or you could be doing more things right than somebody else and they don't get cancer and you do. Right. Because everybody's body is different. Everybody's genetics be, are different. Right. Or you can be doing things perfectly, perfectly right, but 10 years ago. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. And those genes take a long time to manifest. Like you may be making the cancer cells right. 10 years ago, right. but you have your NK cells are happy and you're getting in enough antioxidants and it's keeping it at bay. But after a while you decompensate so um, your body just can't keep it at bay anymore Mm -hmm. and so you get the de-differentiation that leads to the cancer cells happening Um, and that's that so that's why it's like when you say let's cure cancer which one i mean Mm -hmm. there's so many variations Mm -hmm. of 
all different kinds. There's so many ways that the sale can go awry. So you have to, so you have to hedge your bets and do, do the best that you can and know that um, there are certain things that can be helpful and preventative. And then you pray a lot <laughs> and which is if not a small thing. That. <laughs> if you believe in that, however, now, okay. So let's go there for a minute. Okay. Um, what is prayer? Right. And what is, what is anything? So think about this when you have stress, mm. stress. Um, so one of the things that happens when you have stress of any kind, whether it's good stress, bad stress, illness, stress, sad stress, doesn't matter if you, you have stress, meaning that you have to push your body to do something. You're going to kick out a number of stress hormones, one of them being cortisol. Cortisol's job is to break down tissue in your body so you can use it for energy to do whatever it is you're going to do. Well, guess what? Cortisol breaks down tissue. So if you're spending a lot of time in high cortisol, guess what? You're going, your body's going to be focusing on getting you to go from here to there. That same cortisol is responsible for managing your immune system. So if your immune system is sending out natural killer cells to eat cancer cells, it's not going to be as available to do that if you're stressed all the time. Mm-hmm. Also, cortisol eats literally eats tissue. It goes to find tissue, break it down so it can turn it into sugar so you can go do stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're in that situation all the time. If you're always in a stress mode. Yeah. Yes. Then you're going to, then, then nothing is, anything at all can go awry. You could get cancer. You could get autoimmune conditions. You could get endocrine disruptions. You can get uh, muscle wasting. You could simply be tired. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's so many things that can go mm-hmm. awry. And the way we live in 21st century North America is very stressful. Yeah. Unless you're very wealthy and you live in an ivory tower, life is stressful. Right. It's, it's not, it's really hard to escape. Yeah. You know, we have very few people in this country who are so wealthy that they don't have to worry about stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's the rest of us that are, you know, we're, we're living our lives and life is intense. Yeah. So and you, you started out, you were going to talk about prayer. So you were going to say yes. something about how that, that relieves stress or. Yes. Yeah. Right. So when you talk about spirituality and you know, you could believe in naturopathic medicine, um, we, another basic principle of naturopathic medicine is the integral connection among body, mind, and spirit. Mm. Um, and we see them as not separate. They are all aspects of Mm -hmm. the whole. Um, and so prayer is a healing modality. Mm -hmm. Now, what should you believe in terms of your spirituality? Guess what is whatever you want to believe. If you want to be an atheist, rock and roll. If you (laughs) want to be, if you want to be an evangelical Christian, mazel tov. That's, that sounded funny. <laughs> Maybe if you want to be an Orthodox Jew, amen, uh, whatever. Yeah. It's whatever you want to be. Right. If, if you want to have a spiritual practice, um, however you want, whatever that means to you. But um, putting yourself in a state of mindful awareness mm-hmm. reduces your cortisol. It reduces yeah. stress. One very easy thing you can do to reduce cortisol is go for a leisure walk in nature. Mm. And anyone can do that, whatever you right. believe in. But that, and there's a scientific reason why that works. There's a thing called negative ions. Mm-hmm. When you go in nature, you get negative ions. Mm. Negative ions. What's a negative ion? So just you have, um, so say you have a metal like magnesium. Magnesium is happiest in an ionic state. So um, it's more stable when it's existing by itself when it has a charge of two plus. All right. Extra so, electrons. We're getting into atoms. Yeah, we're getting into atoms. That's, uh-huh. that's right. So it, it's so as an ion, it has positive charge. Mm. 
proteins tend to be negatively charged. So when you go to their outer shell, they have more electrons than they do uh, protons and neutrons. And so they have a negative charge. So anything that's out there that has a negative charge, um, when you have inflammation, you tend to make more positively charged uh, compounds. So the compounds that of inflammation, you're, you're breaking tissue down and you wind up with a lot of positively charged stuff. Mm. And when you have acids, you have hydrogen ions and hydrogen ions are positively charged. Mm. So if you want to neutralize them, you need negative ions. So you, when you go outside, you get more negative ions. Um, mm. And especially when you do things like touch the earth, mm. when you go near air and or water, that's moving. Mm. When you get molecules banging against each other, they lose electrons. Wow. And so you get them. That's really awesome to hear like scientific explanation of how nature is healing because it seems like it's just something I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just think back to someone in my life who was going through a depressed phase and saying to that person, you should get outside and just go be in yeah. nature. And how later that person came back to me and said, I mean, and I know I'm oversimplifying what, what a lot of people go through in depression, but for that person, it was just what they needed to hear. And it was, yeah. and it, it made me realize like, wow, you know, we're using up that resource and our, right. and, and how can we, and I'm just talking about it and we're, we are just talking about it in a way that feels almost like a luxury in terms, like some people just don't even ever get exposed to it ever right. from where they live, you know, the level of privilege they have in their lives. So it, it seems like, you know, for them, it's more important that they actually get some fresh vegetables, for example, than be able to be out in the woods. Right. But, um, but still it's, it, it and, and, and that's threatened too, of course, you know, I saw it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up real quick, but I saw something today that, See if I can just remember it. It was something like, okay, we've humans have been on the earth for 4.6 billion years. Is that right? I thought it was longer than that. No, we've been, well, depends on what you're, depending on what you're talking about. We've been in this form okay. as, as Homo sapiens for uh, about 200,000 years. Right. So what's 4.6 billion? Where do, where do I get that? That might be the beginning of the earth. I don't oh, know. That must I don't be know it. what that That's number what it is. was, right? Yeah. It was 4.6 billion years of this planet. And they said, let's just like simplify that down to 46 years as a, as like just sort of to take it into a chunk of time that we can actually relate to. And um, it was saying on that scale, we've been around, oh, I'm just going to look it up. I want to say it was an, <laughs> we've been around for an hour. Um, right. We've been around for, yeah, very short. This is, that's how we justify the paleo diet. Oh, okay. That, say, say, say a little more about that. Okay. So, um, we, yeah, we justify the paleo diet because, um, people have been in this form as homo sapiens for about 200,000 years. And, uh, we've only been consuming, um, grains for about t 10 to 13,000 years. They figured out agriculture about 13,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. They figured out animal husbandry about 5,000 years ago. Right. So we've been consuming dairy for only about 5,000 years. Right. That's a drop in the bucket in terms of how long we've been in this form. Mm -hmm. So that's why so many people have trouble right. consuming just, dairy and, mm -hmm. and grains. I've also heard, so in that 200,000 year span, I've heard a theory that it's been maybe 2,000 years of that that we've had enough 
advancement of our abilities as a species that we're no longer threatened by nature as a, you know our survival we have enough we know how to do agriculture and food storage and we have enough technology and tools so that we can build stable shelters and really like we're no longer at risk of being eaten by a tiger you know just in, in search of basis. food right yeah right? so our survival isn't threatened on a daily basis just because of our relationship with the rest of nature however um we still that's that's a very small fraction of the time that we've been developing our psychology. So we right. we actually, you know, behaved most of that time like we were in competition with each other, you know, tribally, and um, and we're still and we, doing that, right? And we set up our cultures around this idea of we we're we're in survival mode, and we haven't we're still functioning that way. When the reality is. We are creating a, the crisis for our survival um, out of our survival mode thinking, right. out of our hoarding of resources, out of our squandering of resources in during for for the purposes of war, which is battling, which really comes down to battling other tribes for the re, for the wealth of the earth. Right, um, and there really is plenty to support us. It's just that. We're still in survival mode mentally. So here's the st- thing I was reading earlier. It says the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Um, so let's scale that to 46 years. We've been in uh, on that scale. We've been around for four hours. Our industrial revolution began one minute ago. In that time, we have destroyed more than 50 percent of the world's forests. Um, this isn't sustainable. This is like a little post someone shared on, on, um, Facebook. So, I mean, you can challenge these numbers if, if you want to want to, but I just feel like there's enough in that, that sounds like it lines up with what I've heard before to, to sort of take it at face value. (laughs) But, ah. I don't even know where I'm going with that. <laughs> well, getting Just back to prayer. It. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's a good place to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the idea is prayer can be whatever it is to you, but that yeah. act of sitting and being mm-hmm. mindful, whether you're talking to God or your version of God mm-hmm. or the goddess or gods or whatever, uh, or you're simply sitting and being mindful, being in that state reduces cortisol. Hmm. So um, that's a way that religion can actually help you with your healing. And in fact, there are studies where, you know, people who have uh, faith-based practices and have a spiritual path um, have certain aspects of health that are better than others. Hmm. We also know that people having good family relationships, good relationships with people and their communities, um, that is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Say so, what that means. So you can, you so say you have two people who have the same cardiovascular disease. One, um, one has the propensity to get atherosclerosis and hardening of the arteries and have blockages that can block the path for circulation to the heart muscle. That, that's basically what cardiovascular disease is. Um, and they both have the same propensity to have that happen. And, um, they both smoke and they both drink and they both don't get a lot of exercise and they both eat, both eat too much starch and sugar. Mm-hmm. The one that lives in a really happy family and has good family support and, and happy family lives, um, 
if you have one person who's like that and one that doesn't, who's basically a loner and doesn't mm-hmm. have good support or has a stressful family situation, the one who has the good family relationship is going to fare better in terms of cardiovascular disease. So mm-hmm. it's an independent risk factor. So when you're treating somebody for cardiovascular disease, you don't just talk to them about, all right, you have to eat less starch and sugar. You have to go get exercise. You talk to them about what's going on in your life. Wow. You talk, you don't, you talk to them about their spiritual heart as well as their physical heart. And that's the thing we do in naturopathic medicine in general. You don't, if somebody has an issue and you, you know, you can think of this as being kind of esoteric, but in ancient medicine systems, there's always emotions associated with each of the organs. Mm -hmm. And um, if you talk to a person about what's going on with them emotionally, you can often connect it Mm -hmm. with what's going on in their bodies. We see a lot of gastrointestinal distress um, in this country, and, you know, gastrointestinal distress uh, can be about frequently. It's about anger. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have kidney distress, it's about fear, and the kidneys are integrally related to the adrenals. Well, and and you, I mean, anybody who's ever been really scared and suddenly needs to go to the bathroom yes. knows that kidneys are related to fear. Right. <laughs> That's right. Sure. Yes, yeah. because you'll tend to yeah. empty out. Right. And the hormones play a role in that, the hormones right. that you release from the adrenals. So you have the adrenals. Mm. Renal is the, um, it is one of the Latin words for the kidneys. Right. Adrenal is an organ that's adjacent to the renals so it's on top of it and they're both involved in mineral metabolism Hmm. so they're very integrally connected uh and so um the kidneys and the adrenals really in chinese medicine they didn't talk about the adrenals they just talked about the kidneys but the kidney was the seat of fear Hmm. um you have an environment where the air is compromised and you see a lot of asthma and allergies and the emotion of the lungs is grief yeah and, you know, people suffer with a lot of that. Um, and um, when, you, of course, the emotion of the heart is love, but the taste of the heart is bitterness. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I've been, in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about asthma in the inner cities yeah. and, and the idea of environmental justice in general as a topic, a, a direction we could go in our conversation. And then the idea of nature um, as a healer and then also relationships as a healer. And and it, it sort of brings me back to something about how um, we've sort of been conditioned by our system that we're in to, to value things along monetary lines and the things that are actually maybe the most valuable to us, having access to nature, having... Um, opportunity to relax yes, and leisure. having um, meaningful intimacy um, in our lives, friends and family um, are probably the most valuable things. And you really can never pay for those. I mean, I guess no. you can, you can pay for access to nature that that's sort of been commodified relationships. But you don't have to, Yeah, you know, there's ways yeah, to get exactly. into nature without have, paying for it. Exactly. You can have all of those things without paying for them. Right. It's maybe a better way of sort of saying the yeah how they differ from the rest of the financial structure right um if you go to a state park well some state parks charge to get into them but right. a lot don't and you can just go there you know i teach college students and they're trying to figure out how they're going to get into a life that will, will work for them and they'll feel taken care of and that they'll be able to support themselves and 
And I really feel for them because there's not a whole lot of room in what they're kind of being pressured around to recognize that um, those are the things to, to look for. Those three things, that ability to, to, to relax, the quality of your relationships and your relationship with nature. Those are the things to, to strive for. Those are, that's rich. That's being rich. It, it is. Yeah. And the thing is that um, in order to enjoy those things, you have to have leisure. Mm-hmm. And if you're working really hard to make ends meet, it's yeah. hard to find that leisure. Right. And a lot of us are just working really hard to get mm-hmm. to the next day. But we're, but we're also making decisions about our priorities in terms of, I mean, there's, you know, I have been resisting the urge to replace my kitchen floor since I moved into this house nine years ago because it's ugly old linoleum. <laughs> but linoleum is, number one, um, not uncomfortable to stand on. Um, number two, uh, sustainable, natural, not off-gassing thing because right. yeah, uh, compared to, you know, it's hard, it's more expensive than a vinyl floor, which is what yeah. a lot of people end up with. And it's um, more comfortable than a, than a um, ceramic, you know, a tile floor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I keep pushing away that sort of middle-class pressure to, to, to make everything look nicer and nicer and nicer. <laughs> Um, and a lot of people, we all, if you, if you are sort of raised in or living in a middle-class world, I feel a lot of middle-class pressure that your clothes should be nice and your home should be nice and your car should be nice. And you should, you know, go to everyone, you know, around you is going to interesting places on their vacations and you want that. And, and, um, you know, we're both bicyclists and so we have sort of an expensive hobby. Um, but once you got your bike, you, you're pretty much also, it's right. If you have a good way to, to repair it, you can keep that same bicycle for a long time. It's true. And then, but then, you know, people can succumb to feeling like, Ooh, but that person has really nicer tires and they're, and there's, I want a second bike in case this one. So, I mean, we make choices around our, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that financial pressure isn't real, which it really is. It really, really is. But there's also choices that we are making. I mean, really, like there are people in the world living on a dollar twenty-five a day, yeah. and it's it their survival is on the line, um, and they they don't have any. There's no room at all. There's they're not going to be improving their kitchen floor. They're not going to be right. taking up a hobby. There there, but there's um. I guess there's some kind of a disconnect that I'm trying to get at between feeling like we need every penny that we have and and the reality that a lot of the things that we think we need to spend our money on are are maybe not real needs and there would be hard to let go of and give up but um whatever those things are are you know once we move past that we'd still have we might have better lives we might be less busy yeah you know we'll have more time with people i don't know yeah so i think it's it's oh, there's the possibility that um we have more control than we think we do. Some of sure. us. Sure. Anyway. Some of us right. anyway. It, it, and yeah. living simply, that's another yeah. solution. And rather than working harder to make money to um, yeah. to get to where you want to go is to live simply. Right. Live more simply so you don't yeah. need as much stuff, so you don't need as much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You're never going to believe this, but we're, we've been talking for, for almost an hour, which is my sort of my cutoff point for... 
Oh, well, it's been awesome to talk to you. I feel like we're just getting started on this conversation. There's so much more. Um, and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you in front of the mics, on our bikes, <laughs> wherever it happens. Um, so thank you very much, Fran Storch. Thank you. It's been great talking with you, Amy. This is terrific. So, and then if anyone wants to hear more of these podcasts, you can go to hellocc.info, Hello Climate Change, that's short for, um, where all the show notes and links and things are. Um, give me a review on iTunes if you want to help me spread the word about this podcast. I would very much appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.